Hello and welcome to the Mindset and Self Mastery Show. I'm your host, Nick McGowan, and on this show, my guests and I unpack the stories that shape us and the lives that we lead on our path to self mastery. So let's not wait any longer. Let the games begin. Hey, Eliza, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you're here. I'm excited to get into the conversation with you. Um, I got to be honest with you. I don't have too, too much to say specifically in what you're doing, but I know this is a big thing, especially after we'd done a recent episode with somebody you're connected with as well, Mike Bassett. And that kind of opened up doors to other people that, um, that want to be able to hop on the show. And as we were talking before, this is really about the person, but I know you're deeply passionate about what you do. So I'm excited to get into all of this. I don't want to take your thunder or anything, but why don't you kick us off and tell us what you do for a living and one thing that most people don't know about you that's maybe a little odd or bizarre. Yeah, so I am the president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project. We are a nonprofit aimed at ensuring that law clerks have a positive clerkship experience and then extending support and resources to the ones who don't. Um, and then interesting thing about me, um, I'm a tattoo enthusiast. I have four tattoos. I'm planning my fifth for when we announce our first law school partner for the legal accountability project, which should be soon. So yeah. Nice. All face tattoos. Is that what comes next? <laughs> um, I have one on each rib, one on my lower back and then persist on my left wrist. So yeah. Isn't it addictive? Like you're sitting in the chair and you're like, oh, what else am I, what's, what's happening next? And they're like, calm down. You still got another couple of hours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of mine only took like an hour, an hour and a half. So I thought about like a sleeve. That might be my next one. We'll see. I'd suggest it. I'd suggest it. Fancy. Especially when you're sitting there and you're like, oh man, what else could we do? Um, especially if you get an artist, it's like, maybe we can do this. We can do that. Next thing you know, he's got your entire body just covered in tattoos and you look like one of those reptilian people. <laughs> Yeah. I don't think I want one that takes multiple sittings. Like I've seen people go in when I'm getting a tattoo and they'll be like, just draw on me for a couple hours. I don't know if I'm there yet. <laughs> no, that's a little much. Yeah. There are people that, uh, they basically use their body as like a sticker board. They're like, this is a cool sticker. Just put it here. And I've seen different people. I'm like, why do you have, is that the Hamburglar? Like, why is the Hamburglar on you? They're like, oh, I don't know. Kind of drunk one night and here we go. So, um, I, I guess most people wouldn't know about your tattoos because it probably doesn't come up in like normal conversation with your nonprofit, right? Uh, not normal conversation, but I work out in just a sports bra and running shorts. So everybody at the gym sees me as this like person with a lot of random tattoos. I mean, they're not random. They all have meaning. So yeah. Yeah. You don't have the hamburger on you somewhere. Nope. And not planning to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. You might make friends with an artist and just sit down and just go for it. So if the hamburger ends up on your body, you let me know. <laughs> um, All right. <laughs> so tell us a bit about how you got into what you're doing and break that down a bit because not everybody that listens to this show uh, is in the same path of life as you are. So as you got into what you're doing and really the purpose behind it all. Sure. So I got into this advocacy work based on my personal experience with gender discrimination, harassment, and retaliation during and after my clerkship. So after I graduated from Washington University School of Law in St. Louis in 2019, I aspired to be a homicide prosecutor in the DC US Attorney's Office. So I decided to clerk in DC Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term because I knew that uh, DC prosecutors appeared before DC Superior Court judges. And 
For folks who are not attorneys, the messaging around clerkships in the legal community and in law schools is just uniformly positive. It's this profession confers, this position confers only professional benefits. You will develop a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship with this judge, and judges deserve just absolute respect and total deference. So I started this clerkship in August of 2019, and beginning just weeks into it, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me that I made him uncomfortable and that he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. He told me I was bossy and aggressive and nasty, things that would never be said to a man, it would be said that they were you know, assertive or confident. Um, the day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam, so that's a big day for any young attorney, the judge called me into his chambers, got in my face and said, you're bossy and I know bossy because my wife is bossy. And I was just devastated. I remember crying in the courthouse bathroom, crying myself to sleep at night. I wish I could be reassigned to another judge for the rest of the clerkship, which was supposed to last a year but my workplace didn't have any sort of employee dispute resolution or EDR plan that might have enabled that to happen. So I confided in some mentors and they advised me to stick it out. And I knew that I needed a year of work experience to be eligible for a government job. So I tried to stick it out and we transitioned to remote work during the pandemic. I moved back to Philly in March of 2020 to stay with my parents and worked remotely. And the judge basically ignored me for six weeks before he called me up in late April and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, but he didn't want to get into it. And then he hung up on me. So I called DC Courts HR and they said there's nothing they could do. HR doesn't regulate judges. Judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. Then they asked me whether I knew that I was an at-will employee. So then I reached out to my law school to WashU seeking, I don't know, support, assistance, advice. Found out this judge had a history of misconduct that law school officials and professors knew about at the time I accepted the clerkship, but decided not to share with me, presumably because they wanted another student to clerk. So it took me about a year after that to get back on my feet. This was all pretty devastating. And as I applied for jobs, I had to field a lot of questions about why this job had ended early, why the judge wasn't listed as a reference. Finally secured my dream job in the DC US Attorney's Office as a prosecutor and moved back to DC in the summer of 2021. And I was two weeks into training. I'd already started working there when I received some more really devastating news that altered the course of my life. I was told the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance and that my job offer was being revoked. And then a couple days later, I had a job offer or an interview offer for a different job with that office. And they revoked that too, based on the judge's same negative reference. I was two years into my legal career and this judge just seemed to have enormous power to ruin my reputation and destroy my career. So I filed a formal judicial complaint hired attorneys, and in the summer and fall of 2021, participated into the investigation into the now former judge. And we were partway through that when some attorneys reached out to me privately and told me the judge was on administrative leave 
pending an investigation into other misconduct at the time he filed the negative reference about me. But the USAO, the government employer, wasn't alerted of that until several months later when pursuant to our private settlement agreement, so separate from anything the judiciary could or would do for me, the former judge issued a clarifying statement addressing some but not all of his outrageous claims about me. But by then the damage had been done, it had been way too long, and I am pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. And during the summer, I became aware of proposed legislation called the Judiciary Accountability Act, or JAA, that would extend Title VII protections to judiciary employees, including law clerks. Currently, folks like me are exempt from Title VII, meaning we can't sue our harassers and seek damages for harms done to our lives. Stayed in touch with House and Senate offices involved with drafting that bill. And when a hearing happened in the House Judiciary Committee in March of 2022, I submitted written testimony sharing my story, advocating for that legislation. And then the weeks following it, I began to toss around some ideas for future further advocacy work with my friend, WashU classmate, and now co-founder Matt Goodman. And we launched our nonprofit in June to address various gaps that I see in the clerkship application process and in these really unregulated workplaces. Well, that sounds like a mess. It sounds like uh, chaos from the start. But it's also interesting that you bring up that your partner's Matt. Uh, maybe this is a giant assumption, but I assume Matt's a male. Yes, he is. That's a good assumption. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I thought it was safe. Um, you never know. I mean, it is 2022. Um, so Matt, going through, I assume, a clerkship as well, did he not deal with any of the BS that you dealt with, like at all? So Matt did not clerk, but his previous position was in judicial education, so training judges on DEI and other issues. So that's kind of how he comes to this work. But, um, you know, he's been there with me from the start since I filed my judicial complaint. He was immensely supportive, and uh, I thought he was a good person to kind of launch this venture with. Um, we have complementary skill sets. He does a lot more of the tech stuff, some of the business stuff, and um, yeah, he's... I am advocating based on my personal experience, which I think is important, but also creates unique challenges. He is not, so he can be more level-headed when I'm like, oh my God, can you, this clerkship director told me our policy is we don't warn students and I'm so upset. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> chill out, we'll deal with it. So, but um, yeah, he has a great attitude, like we'll kind of promise and deliver. So if a law school needs something, we'll say we can do it and then we'll do it. And he kind of, always encourages me to go forward and assert myself and just kind of, you know, power through, which I appreciate. So. Yeah, that's cool. It sounds like you got a good, a good partnership there. I, I think the biggest thing that stands out to me and law aside or industry aside, it just when shitty people do shitty things, really, when somebody is not treating you the same way. Now I could understand like, if you did come in and you started yelling at somebody and saying things, they'd be like, yeah, she's bossy. She's yelling at us. But that would be similar if some dude came in and started yelling at things. However, I think you're right. I know you're right that when you say that they would look primarily at men and say, well, he's just a bit aggressive because I've been in that spot. Uh, I've been in sales for, I don't know, since I was a toddler, basically. And I know there have been people that have told me you're kind of aggressive, but they've never told me they've never actually like dismissed me. Like it sounds like you were kind of dismissed for being potentially just excited about things or what some people would consider it passionate about what they're doing. There was a question that kept coming up in my mind was, 
what the hell happened to him as a child? Did anybody come out of the light and say, hey, he was touched as a kid or something happened? Because something is clearly wrong there. Now, you said that he's a former judge. So you say whatever you can legally say on the show. Go for it. Yeah. Um, so my settlement just means I can't identify him by name and I don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. So DC courts judges are Senate confirmed. They're Article One judges, but they don't have life tenure, so they can be removed. So he was involuntarily retired from the bench. Um, he, yeah, had a history of misconduct. He'd mistreated other clerks, other court employees. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, I think it's a larger criticism about maybe we should be appointing, we, maybe chief executives should be appointing better judges. Because when I, to the extent I've talked to some of his former colleagues, yeah, he was a bad guy, you know, when he was a law firm associate too. And I think that kind of happens. I don't understand how some of these appointees just get like powered, pushed through the process. I mean, we should be appointing better judges and we should be scrutinizing them. And we should be thinking about judges as like employers running a small workplace. They're not gods. They don't deserve to be deified. They don't deserve absolute respect and total deference. And I hate that the legal community continues to like confer this power upon them. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that's huge to say they're not gods because you're right. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody's really a, a god anyway when it comes to this sort of stuff. And even if even if there were gods, you would think that actual gods being here, they probably wouldn't be that mean as it sounds like some people are. And I really, again, I don't think it's as much an industry-specific thing as it sounds like we're kind of starting to break some of the mold of that. Because if you think of a small business CEO that's just kind of a douchebag, that guy could be a CEO of a Fortune 5 company, still be a douchebag. But that's just going to trickle down to a lot more people and make things a lot worse. So it's the people problem. So how do we fix that problem? And how do you suggest with what you're doing will actually fix that? Or is this kind of a, a bandage in a sense to be able to help people bridge from somebody being a, a douche to somebody being you know nicer, potentially? Well, I would distinguish judges from other employers and other industries because they have life tenure. So not state court judges, but federal Article Three judges have life tenure. They can only be removed by congressional impeachment, which basically never happens. And so they really are able to evade scrutiny and avoid accountability. So I would say that. That's where the God syndrome comes in? Definitely. And the longer these folks are on the bench, I think the more the God complex kind of evolves, which I think is troubling and speaks to the fact that maybe these folks should not have life tenure. But yeah. Yeah. Why do they have life tenure from somebody outside of it? I don't, I'm not in law at all. So why do they automatically give them life tenure? Uh, that's how the courts were structured. When Article three created these judges, they conferred upon them life tenure or tenure during good behavior, which is a de facto life tenure. The problem is even state court judges that have 10 or 15 year terms, they run unopposed or they are just rubber stamped for reappointment. So when I speak to state court judges, and even ones who are doing the right thing, I mean, they perceive themselves to have de facto life tenure. So it's really a problem with deifying judges in the legal community. And then in terms of what we're doing about it, I mean, my nonprofit is working on several initiatives that are really going to transform the clerkship landscape and really just ensure that law students considering a clerkship have the info they need to avoid misbehaving judges. 
So we hope that eventually fewer folks will apply to clerk for these notorious harassers and that that will also lead to some larger changes. If you are a judge and you're no longer getting a good crop of clerks, well, maybe you'll change your behavior. And if you can't, I mean, it's a way to shine some sunlight on folks who need to be disciplined. So That's funny. So do you think they could be like, all right, uh, here's a couple clerks. These people kind of seem like jerks. Let's give them to the other Let's give them to the jerks. So there's just like a big bunch of them. I don't I don't know if the judges will be like, wait, these people are really mean. They're worse than I am. Maybe I should change my ways. Hold up here. Um, I mean, I suggested one. So we do, I do a lot of events for the Legal Accountability Project. So I'm at law schools. And my words got twisted when I suggested this at an event a couple months ago. But I suggested for judges who are mistreating their clerks, one form of discipline could be to take away their clerks. They can, clerks can be reassigned. So take away all their clerks and they have to do all the work, all the research and the writing. We can't remove these folks, but we could punish them in that way. And some like, I mean, clerkship director who is kind of not acting in good faith suggested that I want to abolish clerkships, which is untrue. <laughs> we have a couple bad actors in the clerkship workplace. But um, yeah, I mean, we should be thinking of creative ways to discipline these judges in the absence of changing the life tenure situation. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like, how do you screw with a demigod at that point? If somebody's trying to play God, you're like, all right, well, we'll take away all the toys. So you can't use people. Now you got to do everything on your own. I mean, the other issue is that law clerks who face mistreatment, and this issue is pervasive and unaddressed in both the state and federal courts, but law clerks are quite fearful of reputational harm in the legal community, which is, you know, an employer punishing you for speaking out against your harasser or judges retaliating against these former clerks. And there really are no protections against that. So law clerks are not speaking out, even in the face of outrageous mistreatment, enabling these judges to continue to get away with it. And they know nobody's going to speak out against them. Um, and I think that's one reason why things were so tough for my former supervisor. I mean, somebody was speaking out. And unfortunately... Yeah, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, people should have spoken out sooner. But um, I just really want to, like, as I am sharing my experience publicly and so frequently, it's about empowering law students to demand safer workplaces, but also inspiring current and former clerks to speak out against their harassers. And it's really by shining sunlight on these radically underaddressed and secret issues that we're going to change the culture. And that's a bigger, that's a bigger challenge. Going from one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks to one where everybody brings their full selves to work and no judge thinks that he's going to get out away with outrageous mistreatment. Huh, what a novel idea. Everybody just don't be a jerk. How about we start at that level? But it's really about, I mean, changing the culture, though. Like, they, people get away with harassing behavior because nobody questions them, and people are fearful. Well, have you seen more and more people come out of the woodwork, even pull you to the side, like, little sidebar, like, hey, I'm glad you're doing this because, and whatever their story is. Yeah, so I receive outreach, like, social media, uh, emails, stuff like that every day from current and former clerks thanking me confiding in me, sharing their stories for the first time, which is very gratifying. And I receive disproportionate outreach from the law schools that are our toughest administrations, where they say things like, you know, we're blessed to work with only good judges in this circuit. All our students have a positive clerkship experience. So I receive disproportionate outreach from those law school alums. 
The issue is most of them say they will never speak publicly, which is always hard to hear. And my co-founder likes to call me like a heat shield. So I take the heat for people who can't. And that's fine. But I really do think more folks should be empowered to speak out. I mean, I it's been healing and empowering for me every time I share my experience. And I, what I really try to tell people who are fearful is that there is no guarantee that if you stay silent, the judge who mistreated you will stop mistreating you. Like there's nothing to destroy someone in a position of power. There's nothing to stop them from continuing to mistreat you, to destroy your career. And like, there was a lot of dialogue. There is a lot of dialogue each clerkship application cycle on social media and Twitter and stuff like that about clerkships. And during this several month period when I was going through the judicial investigation and when I hadn't yet spoken publicly, I found the conversation enormously frustrating because it was so uniformly positive and I was just waiting to share my story. Like eight months ago, if I were some rando talking about clerkships, nobody would care. Like, what does she know? Now they know that I'm like a trusted source so I can comment. But I cannot imagine facing mistreatment and then deciding to stay silent for the rest of your career. How enormously painful and isolating that is because people tell me or people who kind of speak out and say the right professional decision would have been not to report. Those folks I know are kind of, you know, conveying their personal pain in their decision not to speak publicly. So I would encourage everybody that it's empowering to share your experience and it'll help somebody else. Oh, big time. I, I, I love that you brought that up as the last bit of that. It'll help somebody else. I think uh, no matter what the story is, heck, even with the podcast, I mean, this has been therapeutic, but it also helps a lot of people. And as you talk more and more and more about it, it also helps you to better understand how people work, how things work, etc. Just like with you talking about the situations that you have will open the door to somebody else. And I'm sure there are times where somebody says something where you're like, huh, I've been doing this a little while. I've seen a lot of things, talked to a lot of people, but that's new or that's something that's a bit different. So how would you encourage somebody that is maybe in law or in some nine to five job or their career and they have somebody in leadership that's honestly a pain in the ass to them and kind of makes their life kind of hell at times? How would you how would you encourage them to be able to work through that situation? Yeah, I mean, the hard thing is it's really about documenting everything, taking notes, confiding in people and keeping track of who you've confided in. And that's not anybody's first idea. When somebody is mistreating you, when your boss is harassing you, your first thought is not, I should take notes and like keep track. <laughs> yeah, document it all. It really is so important as I think about going through the judicial investigation and the notes I kept and the documentation I had. Like now I take copious notes after every conversation. I mean, like most conversations. And that is why, because I know how important it is to be able to have a record. And I was at a law school event a couple weeks ago where we were calling out a clerkships director who was stonewalling us. And I checked my notes. I pulled out my notes and started reading from her email. And like, you know, that's because we documented. Um, so yeah, it's about keeping track of what's going on. And I would also encourage people to reach out to HR, the equivalent, file a complaint. I mean, there is no reason to continue to endure mistreatment. And it's hard because like a workplace HR is set up to protect the employer, not the employees. And really our tort laws right now, I mean, if you're thinking about suing someone, those are also set up to protect abusers and they shouldn't be. So it's difficult. 
but nobody should continue to undergo mistreatment. And uh, yeah. When would you suggest that they actually have that conversation? Because you're right. I mean, if somebody's being mean or mistreating you in any way, you don't automatically think, hmm, who have I talked to about this thing? And, you know, kind of walk through all of that. But did, did you have a conversation or did you try to have a conversation and it just didn't work? Like, when would you suggest that somebody actually take that next step? Um, first being to actually have a conversation with the person and go, hey, what's up? Why are you hating on me? Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think, did I ever say, why are you mistreating me? I don't think so. I mean, he would call me into his chambers and just start berating me. And the thing about these clerkships and the enormous power disparity between law clerk and judge is clerks know that these folks have enormous power over our careers and reputations and that having a conversation is probably not going to change bad behavior. So I think it's a little different in clerkships than in some other jobs. Like if you work at a law firm or you work in some other industry, there are other places you can go. You can go to a coworker, you can go to another supervisor. The problem with these clerkships and why it's a workplace that's so conducive to harassment is because it's so isolated. It is a couple law clerks and a judge working long hours behind locked doors in stressful circumstances. And there's no place for a law clerk to go because every judge considers their workplace to be their little fiefdom. And if you talk to judges about like calling out their colleagues, they'll say, it's not my chambers, it's not my business. So if you are in a position of power, it's about having those tough conversations when you see a colleague acting badly. Um, but I mean, it's definitely, if you're in a workplace facing mistreatment, it's about addressing it sooner rather than later. I know it's enormously scary and difficult, but the longer you let those issues fester, the worse they're going to be. And if you haven't kept notes and you haven't kept track, it's going to be even more challenging. Um, but I definitely see as the future of my nonprofit, one initiative, we want to create a um, employment attorney database to connect law clerks with attorneys who can help. Because like to take the enormous steps that I did, filing a complaint, participating in the investigation, you need to have an attorney. And that is hard, especially if you've just been fired. Like where are you going to get the money for that? And in the um, judicial context and in the legal community, attorneys are notoriously unwilling to take on law clerk cases because they fear retaliation or reputational harm by judges. So it's also about encouraging attorneys to take on these tough cases. And I'm enormously grateful for everything my attorneys did for me. So, yeah, there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed in the legal community. <laughs> I'm learning. Yeah. Yeah. As you kind of open it up more and more, it, it's interesting how it's kind of like a festering problem that's within a, its own niche that has its own little bubbles. I could, I've never been in those circles, but I could imagine hearing somebody go, hey, that's not my chambers. They do like how they run their business is how they run their business. But at the core, we're all human. So if you know that somebody's being mistreating another human, there should be some problem with that at a human level. But then again, if they've played that same game for years and years, decades or even centuries i mean how far back does it go you mentioned earlier when i asked about um how do they get life tenure well it was written that way makes sense if a god or a demigod is basically going to write something up might as well serve them so i think it's a whole different can of worms we can get into on the whole government realm and all of that sort of stuff yeah, and I mean, change is going to be especially slow in the judiciary because these are the folks interpreting the laws, which makes it enormously difficult. And right now, the only workplace protections are judiciary internal self-policing. And honestly, 
when judges are tasked with investigating and potentially disciplining their colleagues, internal self-discipline leads to a lack of discipline because judges are just notoriously unwilling to discipline their colleagues. And so it's a couple issues. It's issues in the judiciary and a lack of workplace protections. It's the exemption from Title VII. It's the fact these judges are never disciplined and judges are just defending their colleagues. Judiciary leadership is saying harassment and retaliation are just not big problems. It's the legal community continuing to deify these judges. And it's also law schools. And this is the reason my nonprofit is working on initiatives with law schools. They are part of the problem funneling students into clerkships they know or suspect are bad in order to fluff up their number of law clerks. And I think they should be the first to step forward and make changes. They are the ideal vectors for change. I mean, clerkship directors are focused on the number of placements, period. Good, bad, devastating, career ending. And they really, some of them just don't care. I've had deans and clerkship directors, including the deans of my law school, WashU, tell me that our official policy is not to warn students about judges who we know harass their clerks. That is outrageous. A policy to not warn people. Crazy. Yes, it's outrageous and despicable, yes. Um, and look, when I talk to people who were at like Harvard or Yale when allegations came out against former Judge Kaczynski and the late Judge Stephen Reinhardt, what bubbled up is that all the faculty knew that these were notorious harassers, but they also did not disclose this information to students who continued to pursue Ninth Circuit fancy clerkships with notorious harassers. The people who most need the info are these impressionable students taking the first important steps in their legal career. And the idea that it is professors and administrators at these law schools concealing information, it's just despicable. It's really despicable. Man, that is a lot. I, I think there's a, there's a lot that it sounds like you're doing with um, with your organization. But one thing we haven't touched on is a major piece that has to deal with you and your mindset. How did you deal with that? Not thinking about where you're at now, but looking back to where you were, kind of looking at that movie as you were dealing with this, as you were kind of going through it, and then starting down the path of maybe I need to actually do something about this because the guy's not letting up. How did you manage those days without either freaking out or just saying, screw it, I'm done? How did you manage that? Yeah, so my story also has several iterations. So there was the first part when I was fired from this clerkship during the pandemic, staying with my parents. And then I was just trying to find a new job. I'd written up a judicial complaint. I had connected with some judges. I intended to file it with the local judicial conduct commission, but I wanted to wait to file it till I had a new job because I feared the judge would retaliate against me. And so then it was about just trying to find a new job and the pandemic was hard on my family. Uh, it was just a terrible time. So I needed to find a job. So then there was the iteration where I moved back to DC and there's this outrageous negative reference. Um, and I was fortunate to find attorneys pretty quickly. I filed my complaint pretty quickly and got that moving. And look, the judicial misconduct investigation was just an enormously painful process. And it took me a while to decide what to share publicly about that. And I have written and spoken a little bit more recently about it. The investigator handling my complaint, she said things to me like, you must have done something wrong because the judge hired you in the first place. She spent like three hours needling me about why I couldn't adjust to the judge's unique work style of harassing me. 
It was just terrible. Um, and then after a couple months that I was told my complaint was going to be dismissed and because it was a judicial misconduct investigation, they didn't have to issue findings of fact. I had no appeal rights. We were just done. Um, so I, it was enormously isolating. I hadn't told my family anything. I hired attorneys on my own. I confided in a few friends a little bit, but, um, look, when people are going through any sort of misconduct investigation let alone any sort of like Title VII or workplace litigation, it's enormously isolating. And it was a really terrible time. Pretty early on in that process, I decided that I wanted to speak publicly about my experience. There was a former clerk for the late Judge Reinhardt who testified before House Judiciary in 2020. And I watched that testimony when I was still deep in the clerkship hellscape. And I found that very empowering and her message of, you know, you're not alone. I thought that was amazing. So I watched her testimony a bunch of times. And then I started working on a law journal article with the UCLA Journal of Gender and Law, which I thought was going to be my first public statement. And the intro and conclusion are my personal story. And then the body of it is advocating for the Judiciary Accountability Act and an amendment to cover the D.C. courts and other Article One courts. So this House Judiciary hearing happened in March and gave me an opportunity to speak sooner. But like, I wrote this really lengthy, I mean, it started as 50 pages, it ended up being 100 pages, law journal article, like over Labor Day weekend and like three days, not sleeping, writing the first draft. So I was just powering through it. And that was healing. And then, you know, doing advocacy work and writing and those things were healing as well, um, which is why I am such an advocate for people sharing their stories um, it's been empowering and healing for me and it's gratifying that people thank me and tell me that it helps them too. I want other people to know that they are not alone. And the DC Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure, that's the regulatory body for local judges. I think they thought that dismissing my complaint would silence me. And I'm confident that the former judge and his legal team thought that too. And that hasn't silenced me in any way. It definitely made me feel shame and pain in the early days, wondering what people would think when they knew that my complaint had been dismissed. But the vast majority of complaints by law clerks are, and that says nothing about the complainant and everything about the system that's set up to protect these misbehaving judges. But I know that as I'm sharing my story publicly, I hope it's one of empowerment, but I'm also talking about all these terrible things that happened to me. And are law clerks and other folks gonna think it's not worth coming forward? I hope that's not the message. My message is you should absolutely come forward because we're not going to change the culture until there's just a groundswell of folks sharing their stories. So. That's interesting. It sounds like you kind of got on to uh, the mission almost pretty quickly where you saw there was an opportunity to jump on the mission. And I get that it's helping you process as you go. Almost like uh, I think of um, like a, a closet where you're like, I'm going to clean out this closet that hasn't been cleaned out in 15 years. You got to take everything out and process through it and then figure out what's trash or what you're keeping. But you're still on the mission to be able to do that thing. So outside of the mission and doing the work on the mission, how are you actually taking care of your mindset and you as a person daily? Like, what does that look like for you? Do you meditate? Do you journal? Or do you just wake up and you just eat a bowl of let's get after it and just go straight into it? Pretty much. I go to sleep and wake up thinking about judges and clerkships. And I mean, honestly, when I was a law student. So there's zero balance. 
No, not at all. Like when I was a law clerk and a law student and going through all this, I never thought I'd spend all my time like thinking about clerkships and judges and yeah, that's what I'm doing. I mean, I work out every day, though I'm usually on the elliptical responding to emails or doing things related to the nonprofit. Um, but I mean, I have a good support system now and it's really been strengthened honestly by my speaking publicly and becoming somewhat of a public figure on these issues. I now have a much better support system than when I was actually going through the judicial complaint process. And I appreciate that. And I hope the people who are, you know, empowered and galvanized by my story will reach behind them and help the next person as well. Yeah, and keep it going. That's great. Hey, what's that one piece of advice you'd give to our audience that's on their path towards self-mastery? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Um, Find something that inspires you to get up in the morning and, you know, focus your work and your life on issues that galvanize you. I mean, I have really combined my work and my personal mission, my personal story. And I think that's important that if you are working on issues that inspire you, if you were doing something every day that galvanizes you to keep going, I mean, that's how you're going to find meaning in your life. Certainly how I found meaning in my own life. So. That's great. That's awesome. And it's been such a pleasure having you on. I appreciate being able to get into these deep topics. And I appreciate that there's somebody like yourself that's saying, well, if nobody else is going to step up to do it, I'm tired of this BS and you're going to go do it. So that's beautiful. Hey, where can people find you and, uh, and connect with you? Um, they can find me on LinkedIn using my name, Aliza Schatzman or at Aliza Schatzman on Twitter. Um, they can look at our nonprofit's website, that's legalaccountabilityproject.org, and they can email me there, reach out. I'm always happy to chat with people about these issues. Awesome. And again, thanks again for being on the show. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Another great conversation on today's episode of the Mindset and Self Mastery Show. So what did you think of the show today? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And check out the Instagram or Facebook page to join the conversation. If you enjoyed the episode, please jump over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a five-star review. It helps us be found and helps others be healed. If this episode opened your eyes, made you think, or smile at all, then I'm sure it'll do the same for your friends. And check out the show notes for more info from today's episode and check out other episodes on themindsetandselfmasteryshow.com as well as our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and look up The Mindset and Self Mastery Show. Thanks again to our incredible guests for being real, honest, and vulnerable with us today. I'd like to thank our sponsors. And most importantly, I'd like to thank you. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Your support means the world to us. And with that, remember, your mindset matters, and so do you.